Well, this morning we have the cheery topic to talk about called suffering. And so if I could um, cause you to suffer in terms of 1 Peter chapter 2, I would be very gracious as we look at the Word of God together. Um, Suffering is something that we all face, and the Word of God is not shy when we come to suffering. We as Americans don't like to talk about suffering. We like to ignore it and do everything we can to avoid it. But the logic of Scripture is very different. Um, It is honest about the reality that is our lives, Um, not only as believers, but living in a a fallen world. Uh, So we want to look this morning at at 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. Hear now in God's word. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures uh, sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps." He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls." The grass withers, the flowers fade, the word of our God shall indeed stand forever. Let me pray for us. Our Father and our God, we are thankful for your word and that you help us um, to understand how we are to do and interact with hard things in our lives. Lord, give us faith to believe what your word says today. Give us your spirit, fill us with your spirit, Lord, that we might have eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray all these things in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I recently watched a a, a video I found online of of three very experienced and well-known pastors answering the question, what, what would you have liked to have known better in your early years of ministry? Certainly, when I saw the title, I, my, my ears perked up a bit because I'm indeed a, a young minister. And so, the, the two things they just kept coming back to. The first was a, a better understanding of the gospel of grace. That how the gospel transforms our lives, that we are not saved nor stay saved or keep God's love because of our works, but because of His great love for us as demonstrated at the cross of Christ. And how that undergirds every aspect of life. What an amazing thing that we would all learn that so well and live it daily. But the second thing was very rich pastorally. They said, you know, I just didn't realize how hard people's lives were and how much suffering there is in the pew. That it is rare that any of us have lives that are absent of deep hurt and deep Sorrow. We do a great job, too good of a job, if we're honest, as Americans, um, especially as Christians in the cultural South where we have to have it always together. 
we do a good job of pretending like, convincing ourselves, trying to convince others that suffering is not a real thing or certainly not something that we're called to as believers. You know, that's not the logic of Scripture. We may not like to talk about suffering. We may like to try to ignore it. But the reality is, the Scripture is not silent. And it doesn't ignore suffering. Which really is our one source of hope. From, from Job's life of intense suffering, losing everything he had except a wife who told him to curse God and die, to the psalmists, their, 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 their raw cry out to the Lord, why, why, O Lord, have you forsaken me? Something that I think we're even ashamed to, to feel like we could pray to the writers of the book of Proverbs, of the book of Proverbs, mostly Solomon. Uh, except for the last little chapter, where we read of the, the struggle to live a godly life in an exceedingly ungodly world. But you know, in many ways, we could say that the, the overarching story of Scripture is how God is dealing with suffering. Now, now not just the, our experience of suffering, because our experience of suffering isn't the real problem. It is something we have to deal with. The, the real problem is the source of suffering. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they threw this world upside down. They broke creation. They merited God's wrath and His anger being poured out not just on them, but all of creation. They broke it for us. And Scripture really is a story of God fixing that. Of God redeeming His people and redeeming His creation. As we march forward to what we read in Revelation 21, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. In my young life of 32 years, as I enter more and more into your suffering, and the Lord calls me to suffer more, I yearn for this day all the more. That great day when Christ returns and makes all things new. One day our suffering will end. But until then, the uncomfortable thing is that we are called as Christians to suffer and to suffer well. That's what this text is about. Peter is going to be addressing a specific group of people, Christian slaves, and how they are to endure in their patience. And then he's going to shift and and talk to us about uh, how we are called to endure general suffering. And then he's going to point us to the example that we have in Christ. Well, Well, Peter's writing to Christian servants or house slaves on how they should interact with their masters. Contextually, we're in what, what theologians call the household, code, household codes. We looked three weeks ago uh, at how we are to interact with, with authority over us. Uh, today we're looking at uh, how we interact with those, um, uh, for us, contextually, employers, briefly. And then in, in two weeks, uh, once we're back from vacation, we'll be talking about uh, how husbands and wives are meant to interact. These are called the household codes, how we're to interact in society. But the reality is that for this Sunday, as we see of, of, God, of, of Peter's call, and therefore the Lord's call to Christian slaves, how they're to interact with their, their masters, it's a tough one. 
There's some tension in this text. Not not the least because about 25% of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. That's a staggering number. That of the population of the Roman Empire, one in four was a slave. Think about that numbers-wise. So we have about 320 million people in the United States. That would mean 80 million people would be slaves. That's a staggering number. The reality is that many, many believers found themselves in this horrendous institution. As Christians, these slaves were free. Here's the tension. They were free. They were free from slavery to sin and bondage to their guilt and the power of the law. They had been transformed and made new. They were adopted by the Father and were sons of the living God. They had value and worth and dignity and purpose because of the blood of Jesus that had been poured out upon them. They were loved and cherished and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They were full citizens of, with all the rights and privileges thereunto, of the citizenship of heaven. And yet there was tension, right? They were free and the adopted sons of God, and yet they belonged to somebody. They belonged to someone. There there were different types of slaves in the Roman world. The ones mentioned here were household slaves. Not those who would work in the fields or be engaged for hard labor. There are many differences between our experience of American chattel slavery and that in the Roman world. Whereas our slavery was race-based, that of the Romans was an economic one. In fact, people could sell themselves into slavery in order to pay for their debts or even to have enough food to eat. Chattel slavery in our own land was one in which there was no road to freedom. But in the Roman world, it would be exceedingly uncommon for anyone to stay in slavery all their lives. Indeed, slaves in the Roman world were mostly well taken care of. could even own their own slaves and their own property. That's not to say it was a good institution. Far from it. Scripture elsewhere attacks the very foundation of any type of slavery that denigrates the value and dignity of human life. We are all created in the image of God no matter what color, class, or race status we have. Any kind of slavery that relies on violence or kidnapping. This was the very definition of American chattel slavery. In 1 Corinthians 7.21, Paul says, But if you can gain your freedom, speaking to slaves, avail yourselves of the opportunity. But what if you were a Christian and you were a slave? What were you called to do? Everything that we've got to read has to be within the context of the fact that the word master in verse 18 is the very word we get despot for, from. Someone who is arbitrary and has power, complete power. So the uncomfortable truth in verse 18 is servants or house slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. In a terrible situation in which they had no power or hope of changing politically or otherwise, Peter tells them the only thing they can do, and that is to submit to their masters, whether they are good or not. That's challenging, right? It sticks with us. It's uncomfortable. But it fits within the broader context of authority here on earth. Romans 13 tells us that we are to submit ourselves to those who are in authority over us. 
Peter makes it even harder. He doesn't just say obey. He says respect. One can obey someone and not respect them. But the respect piece is even harder. The reality is that God is in the uncomfortable habit of using both the just and the unjust. Not excusing what they do or the institution. But He is in the habit of both using the just and the unjust to achieve His purposes. We think of Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament. A very ungodly man. And yet God used him to discipline his people and take them into exile. Or a few generations later, Cyrus, the the Persian king, also ungodly man, whom the Lord would use to free his people from exile. Or Pharaoh, an even ungodlier man, whom the Lord would use to show forth his power over all creation, and specifically the Egyptian gods. Thankfully, praise the Lord. Our country no longer knows the institution of slavery. It was a scourge upon our society, our profession as believers, and it is indeed a scar upon our history, even with far-reaching effects today. And while thankfully none of us have to suffer as slaves anymore, I think we can make some general applications of how we're to act in the workplace from this text. And very quickly in passing, I'll just say these two things. The first is that we are called to respect our employers. Have you ever had three, um, three bosses? And by three bosses, I don't mean three different people. I mean the same person, but three people. Someone who's so emotionally a wreck that one day the person walks in and your boss is happy is excited to see you, is joking, wants you to interact with him. The next day, he's neutral and just kind of, you know, whatever. And then the next day, you just can't please him. I know I have. And it's hard to respect such a boss. But the text calls us to. And I think for us, primarily, that, that, that engages in how we speak to them, but even more, uh, more difficult, of them. You ever had the, the, the boss for lunch? I don't mean eating him or having him over, but speaking of him over and over again in unhelpful ways. Also, work ethic. We are called to have a good work ethic. Um, our bosses have the expectation of getting a full day's labor, and we should have the expectation of getting a full day's wage. Um, you know, I worked for a, in a coffee shop in college for a semester. I didn't even like coffee at the time. I couldn't live with it without it today. Uh, but it was an up-and-coming kind of coffee shop. And most afternoons, we'd have one or two customers. Now, um, my boss wouldn't let me study. It's his right. It's his call. And I'd have a six-hour shift or so, so with one customer. And he said, if you're not serving someone, you must be cleaning And so the children's illustration here is very apt. Because I cleaned and I cleaned and I cleaned. And I cleaned things that were clean and I could not study. But you know what? It was his right. He owned the job. I didn't. That's a fundamental problem I think we have. That our, our bosses own our job biblically. And we are called to serve them well. Well, let's get back to suffering. Um... Don't you love that? Um, 
This text really is about the, the issue of suffering. And, and he, he transitions in verses 19 to 20 away from just the plight of Christian slaves to all of us who suffer. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. There, there are two different types of suffering we could say in this text, certainly in Scripture. And the first is a general suffering. We suffer, unbeliever and believer alike, because we live in a fallen world. Um, you know, when Adam and Eve sinned, they tore creation apart. It's, it's like if, if you went to a, a, a major art museum and you grabbed their prized possession and you tore it into five pieces. You, you could piece it back together, but it would be marred. It would be broken. You could appreciate the beauty. There's still beauty in those five pieces, but it's still broken. And that, that's what our experience of God's creation is like. When, when Christ comes again and makes all things new, the stars will be brighter, they'll be more brilliant, the greens will be greener, the grass will be grassier, everything will be so much better than it already is. It'll be like a veil or has been taken off or cataracts have been taken off our eyes. Until then, we live in a world that suffers because of Adam and Eve's sin. And therefore, uh, everyone must face death, whether you're a believer or not. People are broken and systems are broken. Crimes are committed and people are abused. Despots and evil leaders rise and whole populations suffer. Mental illness hits believer and unbeliever alike. We all suffer. But this text specifically is talking about suffering as a believer. These Christian slaves were suffering um, uniquely because they believed the Lord and wanted to do good. The reality is that by signing up to be a believer, we're signing up for more suffering. I hope someone told you that on the front end. That when we become a believer, we're not signing up for a rosy life. We're signing up for a great eternity. But there are light or slight momentary afflictions that are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all compare. The reality is this life is hard. And in some ways, being a believer makes it harder. It makes it easier in that we have access before the throne of grace, the only one who can solve anything in all of creation, the Lord God Himself, almighty and omnipotent. The Philippians 1.29 tells us, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe, but get this, but also suffer for His sake. John 15 verse 28, Remember the word that I said to you, A servant is no greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The text is real clear. There's no glory or gain in suffering for sin. If we're suffering, if we're reaping what we've sown, there's no, that's not good. That's not a good thing. But we are called to patiently endure. What has the Lord called you to patiently endure? I know some of your struggles. I know some of your pain. I know some of your suffering. But, but the, there are several Greek words that are used here that trans, are translated as, as, as endure. One of these is to patiently endure. This means, by the way, that we're not defined by our suffering. 
Hear, hear me when I say this. This is really important that, that we are not defined by with what we're suffering with. There's only one thing that defines a believer in this world, and it is Jesus Christ. We are not our poor health. We are not our relationships at work. We are not the turmoil in our home because of drama in our family. We are not our temptations. We are the beloved of God. We are not our ragged life. We are not our, our, our sleepless young mothers and fathers. We are not tired caregivers. We are the adopted children of God. We belong to Him. We're told in this text how we're to suffer. Not how are you going to suffer, but how and the manner in which do we get through it. And we, we see this in verse 21. There's a shift. We're pointed to the example of Christ. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. The text is really clear that that we have been called to suffer because Christ suffered for us. Christ suffered for us, therefore we are called to suffer. And now we are called to follow in His example of how we suffer, how we endure suffering, patiently enduring. Do you remember when your children were learning how to, to write? Or perhaps you remember when you were trying to learn to write your letters. How did they do it? They, they gave you a piece of paper with uh, the letters, of, with dots, you know, with dotted letters. And you would trace those with your pencil to learn how to uh, write your letters. And this is exactly what's going on here when we read that there is an example for us. The Greek here refers to the dotting of letters on a page that, that um, uh, students would write over in order to learn their letters. And this is the pattern that we have in Christ. Christ has left us the pattern of His suffering and the stencil of His suffering. So that when suffering comes, because it will come, we know how to handle it. I feel like so often our expectations are everything... You know, suffering in the Christian world, Christian life, are not like oil and water. We're not blessed by God if we're not suffering, and then all of a sudden, if we are suffering, we're no longer blessed by Him. That's how we often think, but that's not the reality of it. The Lord does bless us in the midst of suffering, and He blesses us mostly with His presence. To be called to the Christian life is to be called to a life of hardship. There's some of Christ's suffering that we cannot imitate. Some we can and some we cannot. The Lord suffered in His ministry and He did wonderful things. He, he did healings and miracles and raised at least three people from the dead, walking on water and calming seas. We aren't called to His example to do those things. We cannot imitate His redemptive suffering. Christ's suffering had a purpose and it was for our salvation. Verse 21 sums up why Christ suffered. All that He went through. Everything he went through, from the crown of, on, crown of thorns on his head to the, to the spear through his side, to the mocking, to the lashes, to wanting to be thrown off the side of the cliff to Nazareth. Here it is, because Christ suffered for you. You are the reason for his suffering. You are why he suffered. Because he loves you. He loves you. And you and I, we have a problem that can only be fixed by the redemptive suffering of our Savior. He did this because of you, all on your behalf, for your sake. This was our problem, that that we bore our guilt and the wrath of God remained on us. 
and we own our sin in the world in which everything belongs to God, I think the only thing that we can say we properly own is our sin. And Christ took our one piece of property upon Himself and bore it on a tree. Bore it on a tree that we might have salvation. He did this out of His love and mercy. He willingly suffered amazing hardship. The pain of the thorn and the crowns, the, the, the nails through, the, through His hands and His feet, these things pale in comparison to the crushing weight of God's wrath and fury upon Him upon the cross as the justice of God was satisfied for you and me. And by His wounds we have been healed. This doesn't refer to our physical maladies, though the Lord often does heal us. It refers to the deeper wound of sin and guilt. So how are we to suffer? We see this in this text as well. Verses 22 and 23. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This, by the way, is an echo of Isaiah 53. If you go and read Isaiah 53, you'll read everything that we've just read. I think we can make three brief applications here. And the first is that Christ did not deserve His suffering. Christ didn't deserve His suffering. He didn't suffer because He was evil. He suffered unjustly. How much of our suffering comes from reaping what we've sown? How much of our own suffering have we brought upon ourselves? Here we can imitate Christ's suffering by living holy and upright lives, especially as we respond to suffering. He didn't return tit for tat. Have you ever seen an elementary playground? There's a lot of tit for tat in there. Well, he shoved me. She kicked me. He made me do it. Um, Christ didn't do this. Don't you know he had the power to? The centurions were overseeing his, his, uh, his crucifixion, his execution, as they were lashing him with the cat of nine tails. Just a blink could have made it all go away. He could have wiped him off the face of the earth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How many feuds and families and churches or workplaces are no longer fueled by the original incident, but our response to it, by the escalations, by the lack of forgiveness, the harsh words, the rounds of retaliation. Here we can imitate Christ's suffering by allowing ourselves to be disadvantaged, defrauded, even spat on. The third thing here is that he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Have you ever said, I can't let him get away with that? Christ didn't say that. In fact, he said what? He said, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. He entrusted himself to the one to whom justice deeply and honestly belongs to. And here we can imitate Christ and his suffering by not demanding justice for ourselves but entrust in the Lord to repay those who curse us, who speak ill of us, who hurt us and our family. God's going to take care of it. If they're a believer, He's taking care of it by pouring His wrath out on, God, on, on, his, on His Son, our Savior. 
If an unbeliever, then they will know justice upon the day of judgment. Which points us to the gospel, doesn't it? For we deserve the justice um, that Jesus got for us. Justice was satisfied on the cross. Justice was done. See, we deserve hell. We deserve His wrath. But Christ was crushed for us that we might know salvation. And one day when Christ comes again, all suffering would be gone. Until that day, Lord, help us to suffer well. Let's pray. Lord, we do pray that when you call us to seasons of suffering in our lives, that we would suffer well following the manner of Christ. We thank you for his redemptive suffering. That he would suffer in our place, your wrath and your curse. That we might have the delight and privilege of receiving your acceptance and life everlasting. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.